listening to Vet Candy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Vet Candy IRL, and I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. So today we're bringing you a veterinarian that is starting a business that really gives back to veterinarians that, you know, her once self used to be a nervous new grad and, you know, trying to figure out all the different minutiae of practice and communication and how to build confidence as a new veterinarian. And she started this mentorship called Mentor Vet. So please help me welcome Dr. Addie Reinhard. Hi, Addie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for joining me today. So before we get into all the awesome things that you're doing for new grads now, give us a little bit about your background and how you got started in vet med and, you know, all those things that kind of led up to now. Yeah, so I was uh, not your traditional veterinarian, so I've not always wanted to be a vet my whole life. Uh, So I decided about two years before vet school that I wanted to go to vet school. I'd always had an interest in science and animals. So I applied to vet school, uh, got into University of Tennessee, so spent four years there. I graduated in 2015 and uh, decided to go straight into general practice. I wanted to kind of get the uh, real world experience of what GP was like and be able to kind of fall back on that if I ever needed that throughout my career. I I worked at two different practices. uh, So I spent four years in full-time and small animal practice uh, in the Lexington, Kentucky region, which is where I currently live still. Um, And already in my early career, I experienced pretty severe burnout twice. Um, So once was around six, eight months out. And then once uh, was again at three years out. And I think through those moments of burnout and, uh, I think when we hit our lowest points in our career, there's also the opportunity for the most growth. So during those moments, I had a lot of personal and professional growth, um, as well as some really good mentorship and support, both within the practice as well as outside of the practice to kind of help me through those feelings of burnout. And so on the other side of burnout, I started to recognize that this wasn't just a me problem. This was an industry-wide problem that we were seeing, especially among our early career vets. A lot of my classmates had switched jobs multiple times and uh, just it seemed like such a hard transition. So I started trying to think about what we could do to make this better. And so this was in 2019. And I I started looking into um, how I could go about creating some type of national mentorship program because there wasn't really anything like that for us uh, when we graduated. And there's not really uh, anything like that now. And so I decided to quit my full-time job. So this was summer of 2019. I went back to school at University of Kentucky and I got my master's degree in community and leadership development. And so it was there where I spent two years researching early career well-being as well as interventions to support early career veterinarians. So that's where I developed a pilot program to help support veterinarians in the transition of practice. And then after graduation, I launched MentorVet, which is a mentorship and professional development program for early career vets that's uh, being sponsored by Merck Animal Health, which is... uh, so so wonderful to see their support and dedication to uh, promoting well-being within the industry. Absolutely. So when you were at the university doing your master's degree, what were some of the biggest things that in your research you found really impacted early career satisfaction or happiness? 
It's a great question. And so I, I actually just recently pu published an article about this uh, in Frontiers uh, for Veterinary Science. And essentially, we did a focus group with several early career veterinarians and found that essentially there's a lot of setbacks in the early career. So just essentially transitioning, walking in day one in practice, you know, there's things like discrimination, there's things like sleepless nights, uh, you know, experiencing your first euthanasia in practice. So all these things are really can be pretty emotionally challenging. And I think one of the, the big challenges from transitioning to uh, vet student to veterinarian is um, this sudden self expectation of self-sufficiency. So right overnight, you are a doctor. And so when you walk into the clinic, now you are having to make these decisions. And that is coupled with a sense of self-doubt. So a lot of new grads, including myself, uh, are terrified of screwing up, terrified of making a mistake. And so this uh, kind of almost crippling self-doubt combined with this expectation to be self-sufficient uh, is a pretty bad combination and it can lead to a lot of stress and challenges. I think another challenge that we see, particularly in the transition of practice, is um, learning how to navigate in the gray area. So kind of this changing clientele and ethical dilemmas. So working in a setting that's uh, often an academic institution with all the bells and the whistles, with the clients coming here to get the top-notch care, and then moving out into general practice where now we're having to work within the means of the clients. And uh, I worked in rural Kentucky for three years, so often my clients rarely had enough money to uh, do all of the things, which is okay too. And and I actually enjoyed practicing medicine that way, but it is challenging and it's it's a, a new way of practicing that we weren't taught in vet school. And I think finally the presence of kind of taking on a leadership role and then the conflict that's associated with that. So whether you like it or not, as you transition in, into a, a new grad, you become a leader. The second you step onto that floor, you're a leader, you're delegating. So there is often some conflict associated with that, with kind of building rapport with clients and support staff. Um, and then I, I guess one more thing was that, that we found was just the, the mentorship. So it has the potential to be both good and and have a positive impact on your career and then also has a potential to be bad if you if you get in a situation with bad mentorship uh, so I think those are kind of some of the main things that cause um, stress and on top of the other things that are somewhat obvious like student debt so <laughs> right yeah oh my god that's a whole nother can of worms that we won't go into today <laughs> but um yeah you know I think one a lot of people don't realize is that, I mean, any professional that has that white coat, you know, with great power comes great responsibility, right? So you're automatically elevated to this role, whether you like it or expect it or not, to be someone of this wise, you know, all-knowing, I'm do using air quotes, you know, position where suddenly people look up to you with starry eyes and, you know, like you can fix and heal all things, which a lot of times we can, but it's a very high bar to constantly have set on yourself, I think, but definitely having some sort of communication and leadership courses, I think even before we graduate would be immensely helpful to have the AVMA curriculum committee really pay attention to, I hate calling them soft skills because they're really not soft. They're actually make you a lot stronger of a person, but to have them really focus on your ability to navigate all these interpersonal relations with customers and how to really 
you know, you find yourself in a leadership position and what do you do with that? Or, you know, how do you, what tools do you use to be successful in that area? Yeah. And I think, I think they're starting to do a little bit better job in, in a lot of the veterinary schools. And I, I think the AVMC is starting to place more attention on these professional skills is what I, what I call them instead of soft skills. So I think we're starting to see a shift and they're starting to be more of a focus. Uh, but it's, I think it's just really tough even still because some of this stuff, it's hard to understand until you're actually experiencing the things, right? So no matter how many times I go into a simulated client interaction, it's still not going to be the same as when that client is actually yelling at me and trying to, you know, cope with that. So I think it has to be both. Like, I think you need it kind of some front loading in vet school. And if it were up to me, we'd have, you know, over 25% of the curriculum would be professional skills and less would be medical skills. And then I think we also need it as we're graduating and entering into practice and starting to experience these stressors. And, and so a lot of what we do is kind of that just-in-time learning for these professional skills and how they can apply to your early career right now. Uh, and so teaching some of these conflict management skills and ethical decision-making skills and, and leadership skills. So I, it's been really impactful to see that training being able to be so quickly applied. But I think we're starting to see the shift, but I think it takes takes a while for our vet schools to start to change. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. This is Dr. Quincy Hawley, and I'm here to tell you about a new show. It's Vet Candy Rounds with the Hawleys. That's right, Dr. Tierra, the love of my life, and I have teamed up to bring you the most fascinating cases in the world. Check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or a podcast platform of your choice, only on Vet Candy Radio. Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, when when you're in vet school, you know, to spend your summers or your, I mean, if you have a, a big teaching hospital to kind of get out of that environment and really see, like, if you want to go into general practice, to actually go out into a general practice in an area that you think that you're going to be living and working in and actually see how those practices conduct their clinic and actually, you know, see how different it is from people spending, you know, all this money on all these, you know, CTs, MRIs, all this amazing stuff that we have the ability to do, but it isn't really your day-to-day in a broad part of the country. So being able to kind of set your expectations, I think, you know, when we're giving, you know, medical diagnosis and, you know, how long does your patient can live with a certain condition, our setting expectations is important for people's understanding and how they move forward. So I think setting our own expectations where we want to practice is important so that when we go somewhere, our expectations are not too high or too low for where we're actually going to be going. Yeah, I, I love that. And and I think it you could take it even one step further and in vet school really start to try to identify some of your own professional values mm-hmm. and try to find a practice that aligns with that. Because when I, I don't know that I really knew what my professional values were when I graduated. And I kind of figured it out over the first couple of years. But starting to figure out how is it that you want to practice medicine? What are the things that you value in practice? You know, is it is it gold standard care and all the bells and the whistles? 
If so, you're probably not going to be satisfied working in rural Kentucky, right? And so for me, it was more about, uh, I valued spectrum of care and providing care uh, given the context of the client and the animal and each specific case and adapting my decisions based on those contexts. And so, yes, the way, the things that I value actually did align with this practice in rural Kentucky. So I think it's really important as vet students to start to really dig into what are your professional values so that you can hopefully find a practice that aligns with that. Um, Because if you don't, and, and even personal values like family, right? If you really value family, but the practice you go to work for doesn't value family, over time that could lead to burnout. Right. Yeah, it's definitely, and it's hard to kind of, I guess, sniff it out when everyone's on their best behavior, when, you know, someone who's looking to work there comes through and everyone's just, you know, smiling and waving like those penguins. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely uh, difficult water sometimes to navigate. But you're a part of a, a board that looks into this as well, right? Um, So I'm actually on the research team for the third phase of the Merck Animal Health Veterinary Wellbeing Study. That's uh, one thing that I've been working on over the past year, which has been really fun, working with a lot of amazing researchers and uh, been on a team to kind of dig into well-being specifically. So that's been really amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. I know they released like part, was it part one of that study that came out a couple months ago? So it's part three. Uh, so there's actually been uh, three three phases now. So mm. it's it's the third one, uh, partnering with AVMA. So it essentially examines uh, well-being and mental health of vet professionals within the U.S. And it's the this year was the first. I, I could I should say last year was when we actually performed the survey. But this this time was the first to include vet techs and get some data around support staff as well and mental health and well-being. But essentially, I, I call this study kind of a temperature check. So we're looking every couple of years at the mental health and well-being of the profession and some of the challenges that are associated with it. And specifically for this time, we were trying to look at what impact the pandemic had on the veterinary profession and, and the team as well. Yeah, and that's really, really good of of Merck and the AVMA to look at not just veterinarians, but the support staff as well, because they kind of all influence each other and they all definitely have an impact on one another because it's all part of that working environment that can affect mental health, well-being, satisfaction in your job and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's really important to keep tracking trends. And so it was really interesting because we kind of found that I mean, not a huge surprise, but the pandemic has put a lot of strain on our industry and, uh, you know, staff shortages, long work hours. Uh, we've actually saw an increase in psychological distress of our veterinarians from the previous phase of the study. That increase, I, I think, is concerning. And, and particularly among our support staff, we saw the prevalence of serious psychological distress was twice as high. So when I say serious psychological distress, what that means is just prevalence of mental health challenges. So anxiety, depression, it's kind of a general generalized measure of mental health uh, challenges. But but yeah, I think it, it's been tough out there for the past couple of years. And uh, I think that in the survey, like 90% of people said that shortage of the qualified veterinary support staff has been one of the biggest concerns throughout the pandemic. Uh, so uh, it's, it's it's tough. Um, I think that um, being shorthanded is putting a lot of strain and stress on our industry. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
you know, a veterinarian can only do so much by themselves. And, you know, we need all of our qualified technicians to not only help us with the incoming patients, but also, you know, monitoring. There's been, I've heard so many unfortunate stories about, you know, care, levels of care not being able to be withheld because there's not enough technicians or nurses to look at um, inpatients, never mind more patients coming in the door. So between everything that's in the hospital overnight, staying there, and then the ones that are coming in and out during the day, it's just, it's a demand is so high. And we just, I don't know how we're going to fix it, but hopefully mentor vet can, you know, kind of start helping veterinarians be able to learn how to assess themselves, assess their situation and kind of get guidance. So tell us a little bit about um, how mentor vet works. Does an individual sign up on themselves? What kind of cost there is associated with it? All that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. So it's essentially a five-month program. It's the the kind of core required aspects of the program. So what makes MentorVet MentorVet is our un- online monthly learning modules. So once a month, you go through a self-paced online module that's highly interactive. So multiple short videos and some case studies around a concept. So we move from self-care into leadership, and then we talk about ethical decision-making and conflict management. And we end with talking about how to provide care given limited limited client finances or kind of spectrum of care, incremental care. Uh, so at the end of each monthly module, we meet in small cohorts of about five to 10 vets on Zoom. And you go through the program with the same five to 10 veterinarians. So the goal there um, is twofold. So one is to connect you with other early career vets and be able to have a safe space to talk about some of the challenges that you're facing so that you don't feel isolated or alone in a lot of these challenges. uh, Because most everybody is experiencing uh, pretty similar challenges. So it really helps to kind of be able to have a safe space to talk about those. And then the second thing those meetings do is allow uh, an opportunity to apply some of the knowledge that they're learning within the modules. And so that part of the program, so the monthly online learning modules and the monthly group meetings actually provide 10 uh, race CE credits, which is phenomenal. It's a good way to keep people accountable and keep people going through the curriculum. And then we also have a lot of other optional resources within our community if you're part of the program. So we have a private social media group. We have access to a mental health coaching session for an hour with a mental health professional. We have access to a financial coaching session with uh, one of our financial coaches on the team uh, to help you kind of clarify some personal financial goals and hopefully help you not feel so overwhelmed by the amount of student debt and maybe give you a little bit of hope about your financial situation. Uh, And then finally, we have paired mentorship. So we have uh, at this point over 100 trained volunteer mentors uh, within the MentorVet community who essentially go through a five-hour mentor training. It's free to them uh, and it teaches them suicide prevention skills, emotional support, and uh, how to be a good mentor. And so we're able to take those individuals and pair them with people in a similar practice type, pair them with a new grad in a similar practice type, and get that kind of one-on-one support that you might sometimes need uh, as you're transitioning to practice. Just a sounding board, somebody outside of the practice uh, so that you can talk more openly sometimes about the challenges that you might be facing uh, in a one-to-one setting. 
setting. So that's kind of the program in a nutshell. And I think the the most impactful part of our program is that we have data to back up the effectiveness of the program. So in the summer of 2020, when we first piloted this program, we kind of looked at stress and burnout measures over time. And what we found was that for the people who went through MentorBet, their stress levels actually improved over time. But the control group, uh, so this is new grads who didn't go through the program, their stress levels increased over time and their burnout measures got significantly worse. Whereas the mentor vet participants, their burnout measures actually got slightly better over the six months. So we're really seeing that this program does have the potential to really impact mental health and well-being for our early career vets. And we're continuing to get data each time we run the program, uh, which is really exciting to see even uh, as we grow the program. So we had 75 vets going through the program in the fall. We collected data and we're still seeing that this program is very effective. And so the average well-being scores of the vets who went through the program was significantly higher than a control group of vets who didn't go through the program. So super exciting to see. And we're just continue to continue to grow our capacity. So as far as how individuals access it, we often offer a lot of scholarships through a lot of different ways. And so Merck Animal Health is our founding sponsor. And so they've, they sponsor quite a few seats through different uh, ways. And so, for example, we, we had a partnership with community veterinary partners where any community veterinary partners, new grads who uh, are going in those practices could go through the mentor vet program for free sponsored by CVP and Merck Animal Health. Uh, so that's kind of one way you might enter the program. We also offered uh, scholarships for equine veterinarians. So we had like 20 scholarships for equine vets to go through the program that were sponsored by Merck and and the ASPCA, yeah. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that our daughters have what they need to grow and learn. But that isn't the case for nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. that struggle with hunger. Childhood hunger is a heartbreaking reality that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and provides it to families and children in need. You can help kids in need in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Have you seen any differences between like what are the biggest factors for like say small animal practice versus large animal practice and things that lead to burnout and like a lower mental health score, a lower happiness score? You know, it's interesting because at the heart of it, a lot of the challenges and stressors are the same. The context might be a little bit different. So it might be that I'm working with a horse owner or a challenging equine case, but the heart of the issues, so the conflict, the leadership role, the kind of adapting to providing care along a spectrum, these issues seem to be pretty similar across the board. And it doesn't really matter what area of the career you're in. I would say that for non-clinical or for clinical medicine, if you're in going in a non-clinical track, I would say the challenges are slightly different, but still, a lot of the same things of like entering the workforce and trying to build confidence and um, really learning how to practice healthy self-care and kind of 
becoming a leader within the profession. So, so even still, we have vets that go through the program that are not clinical veterinarians. So they do research and still have a really good experience and are able to apply the knowledge. But right now we have kind of four different tracks in the program. So we have a small animal track, an equine track, a food animal track, and then a non-clinical track so that we can, essentially the curriculum is exactly the same, except the case studies are different. So the actual examples that we're providing are different. So it might be, you know, you are a small animal associate and this is the situation and what would you do? Whereas in the equine curriculum, it's like, okay, you're an equine vet and you have this case and you're out here and what would you do? So it just makes it a little bit more relevant and applicable. Yeah, that's nice. And then you can get paired with other people that are in similar situations as you to going through the same sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's been pretty powerful. And we have, so we have three different equine cohorts that are uh, going on this spring, which is going to be really fun. So we have a equine vet who's co-facilitating those monthly group meetings with me. So, so I guess to, to answer your question about price, the, the nice thing is of the 150 people that are going through our program this spring, hardly any of them had to pay for it out of pocket because either the Merck Animal Health sponsored them or Royal Canin. Uh, we have a partnership with Possibilities. So we offered 20 scholarships through the Possibilities platform that were sponsor- sponsored by Royal Canin and Merck Animal Health. Uh, so most of the seats are actually paid for um, by your practice owner because it's CE credit. So um, I, I often encourage, um, you know, if, if any new grads are out there, I think the price for the program this spring, we are about to set our fall prices, but for the spring, it was $500 for a new grad and $600 for a recent grad. And uh, a lot of our, our new grads were able to ask their employer to pay for it as a CE expense. Uh, so it's it's been it's been really great. Yeah. So it's it's I think it's been pretty accessible for for most veterinarians. And I don't know how long or how much data you have going back, but have you been able to like follow up with your veterinarians, say maybe a, six months, a year afterward and see how their scores kind of compare over time or change over time if they're still pretty high after the course or if they get lower or higher compared to the control group? So, yeah, that's one thing that we hope to get going forward is some more longitudinal data. We don't really have that right now. So part of looking at our research plan over the next few years uh, is to get some more of that longitudinal data and see how this impacts their career going forward. I have some anecdotal data just from knowing some of the mentees who have gone through the program and staying in touch with them uh, because they're my mentees and seeing how how well they're doing and kind of how they're still applying some of these skills that they learned in the program even as far as a year and a half ago. So I, I think it I think it is having an impact, but I don't have the research data yet on that. But I, I hope to have that in the next year. So. Oh, that's awesome. And, you know, kind of going back to your personal experiences, what were, I guess, the biggest factors for you when you were experiencing that burnout and compassion fatigue, all those things in practice? What for you were those, you know, kind of tipping points that kind of led you to wanting to or needing a change or needing something to help with that? Like what kind of signs for you was something that maybe someone else might recognize for themselves as where they need to talk to someone or get help? Yeah. So essentially, I just remember feeling pretty exhausted. One of the symptoms of burnout is extreme exhaustion. So you're tired before you even go into the workplace. And I remember telling my mom, I was like, mom, I'm feeling physically, mentally, and emotionally exhausted. And and I just felt depleted and just worn out by the work that I was doing. 
And uh, another symptom of burnout is cynicism. So you start becoming cynical about your cases, um, your clients, and then low self-efficacy or feeling like the work that you're doing isn't mattering. So a lack of accomplishment is another symptom of burnout. So I remember when I was feeling burnt out, I also felt like nothing that I was doing was helping my clients or my patients, that my, the work that I wasn't doing that the work that I was doing didn't really matter, which I know like looking back, that's not true. But when you're in burnout, that's kind of how you feel. And I think a lot of my burnout, what kind of led to a lot of my burnout was um, at least the second time working in rural Kentucky, I did experience a lot of ethical dilemmas and I didn't really know how to cope with some of that moral stress that I was experiencing of, you know, euthanizing a healthy, not a healthy kitten, but a, a kitten that had a treatable condition, but we, you know, we don't have the money to save it. And so we're having to put it down and that just stinks. Like it just makes you feel icky inside. And I had no tools to be able to cope with that stress that I was experiencing. Um, I had no tools to kind of work through those ethical dilemmas. Um, so I think a lot of my burnout was related to that as well as just overworking myself. And so my practice wasn't asking me to overwork, but I was just trying to see the patients and help the animals that needed to be seen. And so I wasn't doing a good job of like setting healthy boundaries and saying, no, I need to, you know, take a lunch break or I need to take a break. Like I was just kind of working and not speaking up about my own needs. And so then that eventually led to uh, when you go that hard for that long, uh, then eventually you, you might burn out. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm glad you were able to, you know, find a constructive way out of it and you turned it into really something positive, not just for yourself, but for other veterinarians in our industry as well. You know, do you think there's anything that, you know, any questions that recent or going to be graduating veterinarians should ask themselves, you know, certain personal important questions or boundaries that they should write down before they go into practice of things that they should stick to in order to make sure that they're giving themselves enough love and time to be able to flourish and be a good doctor? Yeah, I think, I think it's a really good question. I think one of the most important things as you're transitioning into practice, and even like now in vet school, if you are a vet student, is developing a personal identity outside of veterinary medicine. So understanding who you are as a person outside of this career and really holding on to that tightly. You know, setting arbitrary boundaries isn't really going to help you. But knowing that I really care about this thing that I like to do. And so I'm going to set the boundary so that I can do that thing. And, and for example, if you have a family, if you have young kids, and you know you want to go to that soccer game, you know, saying and ahead of time, I may need time to take off early for the soccer game every now and then. And being able to speak up about some of those things that are really important to you because, you know, setting boundaries for the sake of boundary setting is one thing, but setting boundaries for the sake of your own personal identity and having things outside of the career that you are happy and passionate about, I think is another. So I definitely would recommend having those things outside of veterinary medicine that bring you joy and happiness because sometimes this career will let you down. I, I think it's a phenomenal career. I would not choose any other career than veterinary medicine, even if I had to do it all over again. 
but sometimes this career can be really tough. And so it's so important to have those things that make you who you are. I think so much of our own identities as people get so tightly wrapped up into our identities as veterinarians, but understanding that there's a you outside of that bubble and and really leaning into that and figuring out those interests. And I think that will help you guide your boundary setting for when you're going into practice. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hey, this is Dr. Julio Alonso. Do you want to keep up with everything Vet Med? Then check out my show on Vet Candy TV. We talk about clinical updates, science news, plus some of the coolest people in our profession. Stream at My Vet Candy 24-7 on YouTube, iTunes, and most other video platforms. I don't know if I'd call it identity management, but it's definitely, I think just the nature of getting into veterinary school and becoming a veterinarian is so, you know, it takes so much effort and so much give. It starts to blur the lines of what your life is because your life becomes vet school for that immediate amount of time for those four years. So I think a lot of people, once you get out, all you've known for the past four years basically is veterinary medicine and that's it because you don't have a lot of time for things outside of your studying and your schoolwork. So then to kind of rein it back again is something that I don't think is stressed enough that, you know, and the majority, not all veterinarians, but a lot of them are 26 when they graduate, right? If you go all the way through from high school to undergrad to vet school, you're 26 you're a doctor in your first job, your first, you know, quote unquote adult job where you're expected to be a leader. You're expected to have all the answers. You're expected to be able to communicate and, you know, resolve conflict appropriately. All these things for a 26 year old as their first time out in the job force, that can seem like a lot and it is a lot. So being able to really, you know, have something to fall back on and something that makes you happy outside of, just being a doctor because yes, it can be very sad at times in veterinary, any kind of medical profession has its downsides. And, you know, you have to have something else that you look forward to, something else that makes you happy, something else that brings you joy so that when one part of your life, you maybe have some sadness, you also have a balance of happy on the other side. Exactly. And I I was right there. I graduated and I had like an identity crisis. I was like, I don't know who I am anymore. Like I was a test taking robot. And when I graduated, I started having all this extra time. I was working 40 hours a week. I didn't know what to do with myself. And my husband was like seeing me just like slob around the house, like, you know, not having any goals and just like, He's like, Addie, like, what do you like to do? Like, make a list of the things that you enjoy doing. So I did that. I started listing out what do I like to do? And I got a hobby. So I actually started um, playing cello. And I it was something that I was always interested in, but I never like really taken it up. So I started taking cello lessons. And so I, I think finding some type of hobby or, you know, we've been going, 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 and you graduate and you get the thing and you are the vet. And then so you're there and you're like, wait, now what? Right? So you can have the now what things 
as you're starting out too. So you can, you know, get a new hobby or start a new interest in vet med. So if you're interested in dentistry, start pursuing CE on that. So I think that remembering that this isn't like the end point of your career. This is also just the beginning. So yeah, exactly. It takes so much time and effort to just get into vet school and get through it that I think, you know, me and myself included is that you, when you get, when you first get in, you don't think about like after graduation, right? Because it's such a long, arduous journey to get there that you don't, necessarily think too much until maybe fourth year about, well, what do I want to do after I graduate? Because everyone's just so focused on like graduating vet school that you kind of get there. And then I imagine walking across the stage and some people will be like, well, I guess I'll practice now, you know, because no one really focuses too, too much. I mean, you might be doing, yeah, you might be going to practice or to an internship or there are some residencies that you can go into right out of school. But what are your next goals? What are your next five-year plan? Like maybe write a five-year plan. Are there other things you want to accomplish outside of, you know, medicine or even in medicine, things you want to learn how to do, things you want to get really good at, get CE in, and really just focus on what your goals are, I guess, as a person, not necessarily just as a vet. Because I mean, yeah, we're a veterinarian, but that's, you know, you're a human first, right? And you have to kind of get those I can't think of the term for it right now, but your three basic needs, right? Your food, your housing, and your safety, your your physical, psychological safety. So those are the three things that you need to be able to function in any other capacity. So you need to make sure that you give yourself time to get those three basic needs. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I totally agree. Just making sure that you're meeting your needs, your own human needs. And I love that you you called that out. Like we're humans first. We are humans first. And I had a mentor tell me that one time. We're we're the vet, we're the vet tech, vet student, that second. You are human being first. And so if you can take care of those basic human needs, it's a lot easier to do everything else that you need to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think someone said that to me a while back too. Before I got into vet school, like just don't forget that you're a person or you know, you're you're a daughter or you're maybe an aunt or a mom or whatever other title you are are, you know, more important than just being a veterinarian because you have your clients and you know, it's not like some jobs where you just like say you develop software, right? So if you leave your software half finished on Friday when you leave at four o'clock. It'll be fine until you get back on Monday, but that's not what happens when you deal with lives, right? So I think that's a very difficult thing for people to balance when you know that someone's asking to come in right when you're supposed to go home and go to maybe, you know, a kid's soccer game or a significant other's like family event that you really have to be there for. And then someone's like crying on the phone, your receptionist that, you know, something's quote unquote, you know, dying or whatever the emergency might be. So I think it's really difficult for people to learn how to kind of delegate those things to then places that are open 24-7 and to not feel so guilty that you can't help everything. Because I think that's a huge step to take is to acknowledge that you can't help or save everything. I mean, as much as we would love to and as much as we try our darndest, if you try to help and or save everything you will end up killing yourself. And, you know, I don't say that lightly or, you know, in a joking way at all. 
because it literally happens in our profession, right? Like we know the suicide risk. We know it's there so that we have to first save and keep ourselves healthy and alive by not having like too much on ourselves all the time. And so that we find that balance of saying, well, I helped these ones and, you know, I really like I can do all that I can, but that's all that I can. You know, I can't do the job of 10 veterinarians. It's just not possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you you can't pour from an empty cup. Right. And uh, one of my mentors, Elizabeth Strand, said um, that essentially self-care is an ethical responsibility for us as veterinarians, as much as the medicine, uh, you know, if you're not keeping yourself well and healthy, then you're, you're not going to be able to help the people and the animals. And, and I mean, I, I mean, I experienced that with burnout, right? Uh, I was not able to be as efficient, as effective. Um, and, and I'm not saying that the responsibility is fully on the individual by any means. There's a lot of things that we can be doing organizationally to help support uh, our veterinarians as well. But there's a lot of things that you can do individually. Uh, and we kind of have to have both. We have to have uh, individuals taking good care of themselves and taking responsibility for keeping themselves well, setting good boundaries, advocating for a healthy workplace. And then we also have to have organizations that will listen and will make the changes and also try and strive to create a healthy work environment for all of our employees. Yeah, absolutely. And where did you meet your first mentor? How did that come about? Was that in your first job? I did an externship at a clinic here in Lexington, and it was actually my husband's family's vet. So I think I did two externships there. And it's, uh, yeah, it was a really good, um, good mentor, Dr. Sears. She taught me a lot about medicine. And I remember she was fantastic. I was one of the insecure vets starting out. So I feel like there's kind of two kinds of new grads. There's the one that like come out like, oh, I've got this like so confident, almost overly confident. Uh, And then there's the ones like me who are like, uh, like, I feel like I'm going to screw everything up. I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I know this medicine, I have this knowledge, but like, just can you double check me or triple check me? I'm not used to all this responsibility. So I remember when I first started out, I used to call her all the time. So if I was like alone at the clinic, I would call her pretty much for every case and be like, so Dr. Sears, I've got this case, like, and here's what I'm going to do. And I just remember one day she told me, she's like, Addie, every time you call me, you know exactly what you're doing. And I never tell you anything different. So she's like, so I I give you permission to start being more confident about this because you're doing great. And so I think she really empowered me and like trying to push me out of my comfort zone to really um, help empower me to be like, hey, you actually do know what you're doing. You just need to own it. And I think that's a hard thing for all of us starting out is to own it. So. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hello, this is Caitlin Palmer. You probably know me as the desk wench. You know, the sweet TikTok receptionist who has to deal with the evil Karen Stevens. Well, if you like that, you are going to love my new podcast, Desk Wench Confessions. On my show, I have funny guests who tell me about their own Karens. Plus, we have contests, giveaways, and skits. Trust me, you are going to love it. Check it out on a podcast platform of your choice on Vet Candy Radio. 
when I graduate, I'm trying to kind of be as in the middle as I can. And, you know, I think having that, that confidence in yourself and your training to, you know, build that relationship and that rapport with your clients, but also knowing that we live in this amazingly technologically advanced time where you have every resource that you need to succeed at your fingertips in seconds, like literally seconds. So if there's a question that you have about anything, you can find that answer in a book, on a community veterinary message board that we have. There's so many telemedicine consults that you can get. There's other doctors you can talk to. Like there are so many people or resources to lean on that like there is nothing that you like can't figure out either how to do it yourself or where to tell these clients to go with their pet that, you know, just having that in the back of your mind, like I have the resources that I need to either find the answer or find the path is great. Like that's a huge weight off my shoulders, just knowing that I have the ability to get the answer that I need quickly if I don't know it already myself. Yeah, I used VIN a lot. <laughs> it's like every single case on VIN, like searching and or asking my mentor. As new grads, you have so much medical knowledge. Like that's not the problem. Like being able to do the medicine. Surgery is going to be a little slow usually, but that's okay. Um, dentistry is going to probably be really slow and that's okay. Um, but, but especially the medicine, like there are so many resources, like you said. And, um, I, I think that the biggest recommendation I would make for kind of going out into practice is making sure that you have a mentor or even a peer mentor. So somebody who's graduating with you, to stay in touch with as you're going through that transition, because your mentor in practice, you're not going to be able to tell everything to, right? Because oftentimes these people are your bosses or your managers, and sometimes you don't want to tell them about the conflict that you're experiencing with one of the, the veterinary support staff team or some of the challenges you might be facing. So I think having a mentor to bounce things off of that's not within your practice is really important and you can have more than one mentor. So I, I recommend, uh, you know, connecting perhaps with somebody who's a little bit more experienced with you um, and even asking them if they'll be your mentor as you're transitioning into practice and then having a classmate of yours and try to stay in touch and maybe schedule a call once a month just to stay in touch with this individual and talk about the the shared challenges of moving into practice. And I think if we're if we start to be more open about the challenges that we're experiencing, not in a ranting way, but in like a productive, healthy way, I think we can start really breaking down some of the stigma around mental health and how hard this industry can be sometimes. And when we finally realize that we're not alone and we're all going through these things together, I think we really have the potential to make a positive impact on mental health and well-being in the profession. Yeah, I think the intercompetitiveness of veterinary medicine is something that doesn't help with that at all. That, you know, it seems as though in some atmospheres more than others, it's very um, cutthroat or very, you know, challenging and kind of, you know, oh, I went through this, so you're going to go through it too. And I think those are some of the things that need to be put to bed and realize that just because you were treated badly and whatever your experiences was, doesn't mean that you have to then roll it back onto the next person coming down the line 
because that isn't that isn't productive for anyone, and that unnecessary um, stress um, and bad experience doesn't help our profession at all. It doesn't, you know, help people want to be veterinarians when they see professionals like treating each other that way. So I think kind of getting away from that ultra competitive mindset when it doesn't really have to be and is moving more toward a collaborative nature of helping each other get better instead of just, oh, I don't know why they did that. That was wrong. Da, da, da. Like you don't know their experiences or, you know, what their constraints were at the time that we really shouldn't be passing judgment like that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we know that uh, more collaborative work settings are better for mental health and well-being. And so having this this collaboration uh, in our industry, I think, is really key going forward. And, and I totally agree that the competition, I think it needs to end. And, and I think another thing I, I would kind of pull out of that that took me a while to realize, too, starting out, is that our practice managers and our practice owners are under a whole different type of strain and stress. And so a lot of the things that we're seeing on our end as new grads are not a result of our own doing, and we shouldn't take it personally, but sometimes those individuals are under their own stress and pressure of practice ownership that comes with a whole nother range of, you know, trying to make sure that the practice is profitable enough so that you can pay the team and you can support these individuals. And now these individuals are relying on you for their livelihood. And so that's just a whole nother stressor. So I think when you're getting, if if you are getting some of this pressure or stress uh, around finances or things like that, oftentimes that comes from a place, um, especially from just wanting to make sure that the practice is profitable enough to to pay everyone and so that everyone can stay happy. Yeah, absolutely. That is a, a different level of stress that someday I hope to acquire. (laughs) Do you want to be a practice owner? Eventually, yes. Someday I would love to and to make a practice that, yeah, just like a new age veterinary practice where, you know, technicians and nurses are leveraged to their full abilities to allow doctors to do the things that, you know, prescribe, diagnose, and do surgery and have a, a mutual respect with clients And in a way that everyone can afford to live, everyone can have whatever type of family or outside life they want to and also be productive individuals. And I think there is a way to do it. And it's very hard to find a place that really, I guess, walks the walk because there are so many places that I've been to and that I've seen that like to talk the talk. But when you actually get, you know, in the trenches with them, that's not how it is at all. So I really actually want to make that a reality. I would love to see that. And best of luck to you. It's funny. I <laughs> I never wanted practice ownership. This is the funny thing about uh, starting MentorVet is that I, I graduated and I was the person that said, I just want to work 40 hours a week for somebody and I don't want that responsibility. I just want to put my time in and then go home and go play in the mountains, right? It was it was really interesting. And, and it was one of the, the reasons I decided to eventually leave practice is that I felt like the next step for me was practice ownership. And I didn't really want that. I didn't really have that desire. And so school was always like, a place that I really excelled in and I really always enjoyed school. So I ended up back in grad school and then I just kept following my values 
And then I ended up here uh, doing MentorBet. And now I'm a CEO of a company. <laughs> and and I it, it does come with a lot of new stressors that I, I never imagined. Um, and and it, yet I'm enjoying it. So I'm working more hours than I ever have in my entire life. And I'm also more satisfied with the work that I'm doing like more than ever. So it's, uh, I think that's a, another thing when we're, we're looking at kind of mental health and well-being, it's, it's, there's not a set, like you have to work 40 hours and no more, no less. And, you know, to be happy, I've been working, I, I've been working way too many hours the last two or three months, but I, I mean, I've been working 60 to 80 hours a week since early January, just because I've had a lot of deadlines, but yet the work that I'm doing is so satisfying and meaningful that it doesn't feel like work. Now I am slowing down a little bit the rest of this year, but but it it yes yes I am slowing down. Uh, things uh, are are slowing down, so I'm, I'm gonna get into my my attic climbing wall. I have a <laughs> climbing wall in my attic that I built over the pandemic, and get out hiking more with my dog. Um, it was winter anyway, so there's not much to do here in the winter. So what you know. It might as well work. Um, but uh, I think when you're doing something that you really value and you care a lot about, I mean, you still have to look out for your own needs and your well-being and everything, but it's varying. So you can bur- you can burn out working 20 hours a week. You can burn out working 80 hours a week. It's just right. about, you know, that sense of satisfaction in your work and also how you're taking care of yourself outside of work hours too. Absolutely. And, you know, you can be pedal to the metal for a short period of time or, you know, there's hills and valleys where you can take on a little bit more and then hit the brakes a little bit and kind of make sure that you're finding whatever balance that looks like for you. And maybe it's the diversity in the work. Like I really like the business side. So, you know, if I, you know, did my whatever 40, whatever hours of medicine and then had to do another 20, 30 hours of businessy things, like that's fine because it uses different parts of my brain. So to me, it's like a different um, task to do. It's different, complicated problems and things to solve. So whatever, like, like you said, is your passionate work, whatever you find, you get the most happiness from whatever that might be. Maybe it's, you know, you do a little less work at one clinic in order to do maybe some routine vaccine clinics because you like giving back and that fills your cup. You know, you never know what that might be. Um, so just being able to really have that flexibility to find what works best for you and kind of what your schedule is works best for you, I think is really helpful. Yeah. And I think it's a work-life flow. Like you mentioned, it's, it's ups and downs and the same thing happens in practice. So there's going to be times where it's really busy and it feels like nonstop. And usually that's the summer months of like, you're just go, go, go. And then Sometimes you get like a little lull in the winter where you can kind of have that little bit of chill and then you ramp back up into summer. And so I think that uh, knowing the workload generally has ups and downs. Um, and, and and I'm experiencing that right now and not in clinical practice full time. Uh, and, and, and that's OK. You know, sometimes we might work a little bit harder, but uh, making sure that that's not something you're sustaining forever and you're recognizing and realizing, you know, I'm starting to realize now, like I'm starting to feel tired, like I need to take a step back from this. So so I think being able to be really self-aware about how you're feeling and your satisfaction and uh, kind of overall how you're doing in the workplace is so important to continually reassess. Yeah, absolutely. And I like how you said more of a flow because it's not always 
work-life balance, but the work-life flow so that you can kind of give and take. It's not like it has to be always equal. It's, you know, whatever you need to be done in your life at that time. Exactly. Yeah. And they also call it work-life integration. For me, especially right now, I I might be sometimes working on a day off, but if it's something that I need to spend like an hour on, then that's okay. I I email for about an hour to get caught up and then I enjoy the rest of the day. So there doesn't have to be a clear delineation for me as much. Um, And, you know, sometimes I like working late at night. So I might be working at nine or 10 o'clock at night. So I think it's just, you know, integrating your work and your life and figuring out how that works for you, I think is, is important going forward in your career. We'll be right back with more Vet Candy. Hi, I'm Danica Patrick. Watching my nieces grow, play, and learn is amazing, but not every child gets to be carefree. One in six kids in the U.S. are hungry. This breaks my heart, and it's something that Feeding America is working to change. Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste and gives it to families in need. To help, visit feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Well, thank you, Addie, for joining me today. I think we had great conversations and um, great helpful tips and advice. And, you know, hopefully some of our listeners will... um, get something great from this and even sign up for MentorVet. Thank you so much for having me. It was so fun chatting. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you to all of our listeners in the Vet Candy universe. I hope you guys had um, a great time listening to this today and got to learn some new things and, you know, maybe got new insights into your work-life flow. So I am so excited to talk to you guys today and I will keep bringing you the best voices in veterinary medicine to keep up with everything on Vet Candy. Follow us at My Vet Candy and I will see you next time. And I'm your host, Shannon Gregoire. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. Vet Candy. It's Vet Candy Radio.